the Haraber Catechism. Let's read together at Lord's Day 48. What is the second petition? Your kingdom come. That is, so rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the works of the devil, every power that raises itself against you, and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today in our catechism preaching, we continue to receive lessons in how we are to pray. Last week, our focus was on how we are to pray for the glorification of God's name. Today, our focus shifts to how we are to pray for the coming of God's kingdom. What are we asking for when we pray, your kingdom come? What is the kingdom of God? Many people are confused about this. Is this just a prayer for the return of Christ on the clouds of heaven? Or is more involved when we pray, your kingdom come? This afternoon we read together some passages from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 3 tells us how John the Baptist came preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus began his public ministry, he repeated those same words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These passages suggest that the kingdom of heaven has come. Yet in Matthew 6, we heard Jesus telling the crowds not to worry about what they should eat or drink or wear. Our Heavenly Father knows that we need all these things. Jesus said, seek first. The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. These words make clear that, the God, that God's kingdom has not yet fully come. And so questions abound. What are we actually talking about when we speak about the kingdom of God? How can Jesus say both that it has come and that we still need to seek it? What does it actually mean to seek first the kingdom of God? What are we asking when we pray the second petition, your kingdom come? These are some of the things that we're going to investigate this afternoon. I preach you the word of God under the following theme. Christ calls us to seek first the kingdom of God. In your own life, in the church, and in the world. So what is the kingdom of God? When speaking about a kingdom, we often think about a place. The kingdom of Great Britain refers to the lands and the peoples under the rule of the British king or queen. And in the same way, the kingdom of God refers to the land and the people under the rule of God. The kingdom of God refers to the kingship of Jesus Christ. It refers to all those who are willing to submit their hearts and lives to Christ's 
lordship. That's when we pray your kingdom come. We're praying that more and more Christ may be recognized as king, both in our own lives and in this world. Sometimes we get mixed up about when God's kingdom will come. Has it already happened or is it something that still needs to happen? The best way to answer this question is to ask another. Is Jesus Christ king in your heart and in your life? If you are a Christian, you'll acknowledge that Jesus is your Lord and King. But that doesn't mean that we always fully submit to his Lordship. There's times when our sinful nature gets in the way. There are times when we say and do things that are not pleasing to God. Often we try to run life our own way. We want to be in control of our own lives. We seek satisfaction in the things that this world has to offer. And so while Christ is supposed to be king of my life, I don't always submit myself to his lordship. You see, beloved, when God first created this world, he exercised dominion over the whole of his creation. Man was given dominion over all things, and he was able to fulfill his mandate perfectly. There was no sickness or death. Sin had not yet entered the world, and so God's blessing rested on the whole of his creation. All the relationships in this world functioned perfectly. Although Satan existed, he had no subjects on earth. For man submitted himself to God as king. Then man fell into sin. Man decided to obey Satan rather than God. The result was that God gave mankind over to the dominion of the evil one. Satan became the ruler of this world. Man became a slave of sin. Genesis 6 verse 5 records the result. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Yet of his own accord, man can do nothing to save himself from the mastery of the evil one. The result of the fall into sin was that Satan was empowered to rule over the hearts and lives of people everywhere. Despite the fall into sin, God has not given up his sovereign kingship. He remains in control of this world and of all those who dwell in it. While God allowed Satan to exercise dominion over his world, God was still ultimately in control. In his good pleasure, God decided to re-establish his kingdom on earth. He gave Adam and Eve the gracious promise that he would send the Messiah to defeat Satan, to restore his people to himself. 1 John 3 verse 8 tells us, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the evil one. Jesus came into this world to re-establish God's kingdom on earth. Now in ancient times, the coming of a king was often preceded by a herald who prepared the people for the king's arrival. John the Baptist was the herald that prepared God's people for the coming of their Messiah. So how did John the Baptist prepare the hearts of God's people for the coming of the Christ? He came 
preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew makes it clear that he fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. What was the message that John the Baptist brought? He told the people that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. It was exciting news for God's people. They had not heard from God for over 400 years. They'd been under the dominion of the Greeks. They were now under the rulership of the Romans. God's people found it difficult to comprehend where God was. Why he allowed them to suffer so many hardships under the rulership of foreign kings. They longed to hear from God. To see God establish his kingdom among them again. John the Baptist was the first prophet in hundreds of years sent by God. The crowds thronged to John to hear the message he brought. What was John's basic message? It was that the king was coming. Israel's long-awaited Messiah was on the way. He was coming to establish God's kingdom on earth. To do that, he would need to vanquish their foes. Now, many in Israel were expecting an earthly king. They were expecting the Messiah to come and deliver them from the rule of the hated Romans. They were looking forward to God reestablishing Israel as a dominant power in world affairs. But no beloved John's call to God's people Israel. Did John call them to gather together chariots and horsemen, swords and spears? Was he calling them to train an army to fight a physical battle against their enemies? No. As herald of the coming king, John called the people to repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To repent means to turn back, to turn away from our sins. It involves a drastic change in our lives, saying no to the sinful desires of the flesh, seeking God, striving to do His will, the things that please Him. Did you see how the people of John's day responded to his call? Many came to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. There's something very instructive about this. True repentance requires that we acknowledge our sins. You cannot and will not change if you're not willing to confess your sins. You first have to acknowledge that there's a problem before that problem can be addressed in your life. Sometimes we adopt the same attitudes as the Pharisees and the scribes who are coming to John. We think that we're God's covenant children and that as such everything is a-okay in our lives. We presume on God's grace while living sinful lives. John called Israel's leaders a brood of vipers. He told them that they were a bunch of hypocrites. Outwardly, they presented themselves as pious followers of God. 
but their lives did not give evidence of the fruit of repentance. It's easy for us, beloved, to presume that all is okay in our standing with God. We've grown up in the church. We believe the gospel message. But the question is, has your heart and your life been transformed by the gospel? Are you truly living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Is he really number one in your life? We might think all is okay with us because we participate in worship on Sundays. But is God a living reality for you in the rest of the week? Or do you just get on with the rest of life without him? Beloved, do you begin your day with God? Or are you too lazy to get up on time to read your Bible and to pray in the morning? The Bible teaches us that if we truly love God, we will love our neighbor as ourselves. Are you showing forth love to those around you? Why do you often treat your spouse so poorly and take out your frustrations on your family members? Or do you gossip and slander about your brothers and sisters, degrading them in front of others? Is it possible, beloved, that you're living a double life? That you present yourself as a Christian, but then go on to indulge in all kinds of sinful pleasures? Do you view pornography, engage in sinful fantasies, or have sex outside of marriage? How much time do you waste on your own pleasures, watching TV and surfing the internet? Do you spend money on yourselves, on smokes and booze, on cell phones, large screen TVs, cars, trucks, and fancy homes, while neglecting to faithfully support church and school and mission? Can you see, beloved, how the call to repent also applies to us? We need to learn to identify our sins and shortcomings, to recognize our pride, our self-sufficiency, our greed, our lust, our covetousness, our anger, our self-centeredness. We need to confess our sins before God, grieving that we've offended him with them. We need to learn to hate our sins and flee from them. True repentance is a turning away from sin. It requires a change in how you live your life. Not good enough to feel a bit sad today, listening to this sermon. And then to go forward and continue living in the same sinful patterns as always. Seeking the kingdom of God, first of all, applies to each of us in our own personal life. I hope by now you have come to the realization Christ is not always Lord in your life, in the way he should be. The reason Christ teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, is that each one of us needs to learn to more and more submit to him. Our catechism teaches us that when we pray, your kingdom come, we're asking our heavenly father, so rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we may submit to you.
You see, beloved, there's a battle going on in each of our lives. By nature, we want to be autonomous. We want to be kings of our own lives. We want to be in control. We want to do the things that please us. We need to pray the second petition so that more and more Christ may be king in our hearts and lives. That more and more we may submit ourselves to his word and spirit. So that we say no to the sinful desires of the flesh. So that we do what is pleasing to God. There's a battle involved in the Christian life. The Bible teaches us to fight the good fight of the faith. It's a daily struggle. Yet Christ has not left us on our own. He's come to make his home in us. His spirit is there to guide and direct us. When we read and study the Bible, the spirit uses this to encourage us and direct us. He enables us to make progress in our lives as Christians. That more and more we may live God-glorifying lives. So far, we've seen how we are to seek the kingdom of God in our personal lives. In our second point, we'll see how we are to, see the, how we are to seek the kingdom of God in the church. Part of praying the second petition is a prayer for Christ's church. Our catechism explains that part of praying your kingdom come is asking our Heavenly Father to preserve and increase the church. Many people have questioned the link between Christ's kingdom and his church. Are they the same thing? Do they overlap? What's the relationship between them? These are good questions. We've already established that when the Bible speaks about the kingdom of God, it refers to Christ's kingship, his rule in the hearts and lives of his people. It's important to note that God does not deal with his children as just individuals. It's true that each of us needs to have a personal relationship with Christ. Each one of us needs to personally repent of our sins. We need to personally believe the promises of the gospel. Yet God has always dealt with his people as a community. In the Old Covenant, God chose Abraham and established a covenant with him and his descendants. The Lord redeemed his people Israel from slavery in Egypt and gave them the land of Canaan as their inheritance. God gave Israel leaders to nurture and guide his people in his ways. Moses, Joshua, the judges, and the kings. He appointed the tribe of Levi to minister before him as priests and Levites, leading Israel in the covenant worship of God. He sent his prophets to call his people to repentance when they strayed. Among all the nations, the Lord considered Israel to be his treasured possession. He called them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In the New Covenant, we see a progression. Many of God's covenant people rejected the Messiah whom God sent. The Jewish leaders were the ones who arrested Jesus, had him falsely accused, unfairly condemned him, and put him to death. Even after Jesus arose and the apostles proclaimed the good news of salvation, 
most of the Jewish leadership refused to humble themselves and to repent. Christ appointed his disciples as new leaders in the kingdom of God. The apostles helped to establish the Christian church. In 1 Peter 2, we see that the names formerly ascribed to Israel are now applied to Christ's church. The church is called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Functionally, the church is a gathering of true believers who expect their entire salvation in Jesus Christ, are washed by his blood and sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. The New Testament makes clear the close relationship between Christ and his church. Christ is the good shepherd. The church is his flock. He is the bridegroom and we are his bride. He is the cornerstone on which the church is founded and we are living stones. These images convey the close relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. You see, beloved, the church is the means by which Christ is established and by which he furthers his kingdom on earth. It is to the church that Christ has given office bearers to call and to keep his people living in communion with him. It's to his church that Christ has given the ministry of the gospel, the sacraments, and church discipline. If you want to buy bread, you find it in a bakery. If you want to buy a bike, you find it in a bike shop. You're not going to find a bike for sale in a bakery or bread for sale in a bike shop. In the same way, if you seek Christ and you want salvation in him, the place to find him is in the church. Christ has established his church, the gathering of believers, as the place where salvation may be found. This is implications for our lives, beloved. Just as Christ treasures the church as his bride, so we also need to love the church as our own body. There are times when people have faced troubles and sorrows in their local church. Churches are made up of sinful people. At times, members are put off by the moral failures of church leaders. There's times when church members sin against each other in terrible ways. At times, church leaders fail us. They don't minister to us with the love of Christ. There can be all sorts of reasons why we might be inclined to withdraw from the church of Christ. And yet, beloved, it would be wrong for us to withdraw from Christ's church. No true Christian can be content to be by him or herself. Each of us needs to be a member of a local church. For it's to the church that Christ has made the promise that the gates of hell will never prevail against it. God ministers to us through his church. It's where the gospel is proclaimed. It's where the sacraments are administered. It's where we as brothers and sisters live in communion together. We support each other. We encourage each other. 
When someone is sinning, we call him or her to repentance. We're there for each other, helping each other in the good fight of the faith. So we may inherit the crown of life. In the second petition, we pray for Christ's church. We pray that our Heavenly Father may preserve and may increase the church. If you're serious about that prayer, beloved, you also need to love Christ's church. As confessing members, we've all promised to be living members of the church, using our gifts and talents in the church. And so I want to ask you to examine your heart and your life. Does Christ's church have priority in your life? Are you involved in the church? Do you use your gifts and talents to support your fellow brothers and sisters in their walk with God? Do you support the ministry of the gospel with your financial gifts? There's an old Latin saying, ora e labora, pray and work. Praying your kingdom come requires your active involvement in church life. This brings us to our final point, and it will see how we are to seek the kingdom of God in the world. We saw earlier that with the fall into sin, God gave rulership of this world into the hands of Satan. Yet God sent his son into the world to destroy Satan's work, to reestablish his kingdom on earth. Jesus began his ministry by preaching the same message that John the Baptist preached. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. After that, Jesus immediately began calling a group of men as disciples or followers. They were to be his eye and ear witnesses who would later proclaim his mighty deeds. Right from the beginning of his ministry, we see how Jesus saved people from their sins. He went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus also gave a visible demonstration of the power of the gospel to release people from the effects of sin. Our reading from Matthew 4 shows how people brought to Jesus all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. It was a visible picture of how life renewing the gospel is, of the redeeming and renewing work our Savior came to do. Today, Satan still exercises dominion in the hearts and lives of many people. He uses false philosophies and religions to hold many people captive in the ways of sin. But Christ our Savior continues his glorious work of salvation. Part of the mandate he gave the church was to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. We've been mandated to make disciples of all nations, to speak to unbelievers of the hope that is in us, to let our light shine before others, that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. You see, beloved, part of the second petition is that we pray that God may destroy the work of the devil 
and every power that raises itself against him, and every conspiracy against his holy word. We pray that Satan's influence may decrease, and that Christ's lordship may increase, that God in grace may allow many more to be gathered into his kingdom, his church. Once again, beloved, if we are going to pray for Christ to gather many more into his church, And we also need to be active in sharing the gospel. Communally, we support the work of mission and evangelism. We financially support the work of Reverend Wittevane in Brazil and Reverend Zachfeld in Niverville. Beloved, do we pray for them? Are we willing to get involved in the outreach work at Ambassador? Are you living as a light in this dark world? Can those around you see that you are a Christian? Do you speak of your faith with them and pray for God's work in them? At times we would be discouraged because in our local context we don't see many people from outside committing their hearts and lives to Christ. And yet our prayers are powerful, and they have a fact. One by one, Christ does use our efforts to call his chosen ones into fellowship with him. Today, Christ is doing a glorious work, spreading the gospel, especially in Asia and in Africa. There's so many people there hungering and thirsting for the gospel, repenting of their sins and committing their lives to Christ. We see the kingdom of God advancing, the elect being gathered in. Beloved, Christ has taught us to pray for the coming of his kingdom. Let us earnestly pray this petition. May we seek first the kingdom of God in our own lives, in the church, and in the world. And let's also pray this petition confidently. Christ has won the victory over Satan with his death on the cross. He is reigning as our victorious king. Satan's power is limited. He cannot do anything without the express permission of our Father in heaven. We see this in the concluding words of the Lord's Prayer. We confess, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. While it's true that the fullness of God's kingdom has not yet come, King Jesus is bringing it about. We may be certain of this. For Jesus Christ has promised to return on the clouds of heaven. On that day, we will experience the fullness of his kingdom. All his foes will be cast into the eternal fire and will be allowed to dwell with him in joy and glory forevermore. Amen.